Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. It is Monday morning. I don't know, September something. 21st. September 21st. Um, We have a lot of news headlines to engage in today, but I want to lead off with um, maybe the most important question of the day. It's the most important question um, you and I are likely to answer in our entire lives, and that is, how do you respond? How do you respond to the grace of God offered you in Jesus Christ? How do you respond to that? It's not a question of whether or not, you know, Jesus was or is or is to come. All of those are uh, are truths regardless of whether or not you believe them. So I'm not really asking for, you know, some sort of historical debate about the veracity of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, nor am I looking for you to weigh in on whether or not he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. Those are actually facts of history. The question is, how do you respond? How do you respond? How do you respond to the good news? Well, I suppose it's only good news if you respond to it positively. How do you respond to the news? How do you respond to the news that the God of the universe has done everything necessary for your salvation? How do you respond to that? Do you respond to that with gratitude? Acknowledge the great, acknowledging the greatness and the goodness of God? Or do you respond, frankly, by, um, I don't know, some kind of arrogant shirking as if you are able to save yourself or as if you don't need saving? I was really convicted over the weekend um, that there are just a handful of ways that people respond to the reality of Christ. When Jesus was here walking and living among us, full of grace and full of truth, fully God and fully man, God in the flesh, incarnate, Jesus of Nazareth, attested to not only in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, but attested to by historians of the time and non-believers alike. People responded in a handful of ways. People still respond in that same handful of ways. And so the ultimate question is going to be not who do other people say that Jesus is, but how do you respond to the question of who Jesus says he is when he says, you know, I am the Christ, I'm the Messiah, I am. How do you respond to that? All right, we're going to obviously talk today with some of our Monday regulars. Zach Jenkins, Dr. Zach Jenkins is back. He and I are going to survey the COVID headlines of the day. Dr. Adam Carrington is uh, is here 
He is. Uh, he and I are going to talk about not only the death of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Gator, Bader Ginsburg, but we are going to talk about whoo, the fact that that is all the talk in Washington, D.C. today. And then um, I've obviously got Dr. David Aikman at the bottom of the second hour, but at the top of the second hour, Caitlin Scheiss will be here. She's the author of The Liturgy of Politics. If you're thinking to yourself, I'm just already exhausted and the election isn't here yet. This is a conversation for you because it's about um, spiritual formation, who we are in Christ for the sake of the nation. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Dr. Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University, our epi—I don't know—epidemiologist, immune. He's got all kinds of fancy titles. I words I can't say this early in the morning. Zach, welcome back. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Okay, in short, in short, what are the big words? Epidemiology, and then what's the one that sounds like it starts with the word immune? Immunology. Immunology. Okay, what what is that? Well, immunology is the study of the immune system. All right. And that's what you're helping us. Um, we want our immune system to be as strong as possible so that we can ward off nasty things like the common cold and the coronavirus. Yes? <laughs> yes. Okay, fantastic. See, see, people want to know, what is the good that Zach is doing in the world? There you go. He is helping us fight <laughs> off the bad things. That's epidemiology. He is helping us boost the good things. That's immunology. Is that pretty good? Is that a good start? I think that'll work. All right. Fantastic. All right. Um, masks and vaccines. Uh, let's talk about um, the C- the head of the CDC, the CDC director, and conversations about face masks and vaccines. Wow. So, so this has been an interesting development. There was an article that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine um, about two weeks ago now, and the article actually suggested that masks can actually limit the severity of disease if you are to be infected. We've known for a while that obviously a paper mask does not prevent all transmission, but it prevents a lot of transmission, right? But the the most interesting thing is this this theory that's that's kind of emerging that maybe the uh, viral load, which is a measurement of how much virus a person actually has in their body, maybe that viral load gets decreased by the masks because it's blocking a lot of that transmission. So what happens is only a little bit of that uh, virus gets in that person and they have a less severe immune response because of that. Um, so, so that's kind of been one of these working theories. And it's been interesting to look at the data because if you look at uh, sectors of the world like Mumbai out in India where housing is stacked so closely together, they've got, they have multi-generational homes a lot of the cases in those regions have not necessarily been as severe as places that maybe are not set up in that same way. Um, and they think it's because this constant viral particle exposure is maybe not so bad um, as long as it's reduced. So it's it's a really interesting theory. I was actually really uh, – I, I questioned the headline when I first read it. And, and then after I delved into the study, I was like, actually, there may be something to this. All right. So, I mean, again, I just think that we're confirming that there 
are advantages to wearing masks. And so when you are in a space with other people, it's good for you and it's good for them to be wearing a mask. I'm not making a political statement when I say that. I am simply making a statement about the welfare of yourself and others. Okay. Zach, let's talk about um all right, so I'm reading this morning that um you know the the CDC is confirming that coronavirus is uh transmitted through the air. I don't I don't think that's news. No, Did it's we not, not news. know that it was airborne? I mean, I, isn't that the whole idea of it being transmitted when I exhale? Well, the the, the debate really kind of comes down to the predominance of it being airborne versus droplets. So droplets, the, the difference there is that they're usually bigger particles and that oh. they don't stay in the air quite as long. But if it's airborne, you're going to actually have that in the air potentially for hours is kind of the thought. Um, so tuberculosis is an example. That's something that likes to stay in the air for hours and hours and hours. We've always considered that an airborne virus. It's the precautions we have to take in, in the setting of that. That is actually very different. Um, when, when you kind of compare that then to um, covid that that's the debate, right? So if it's if it's airborne, if that's the predominant way it spreads, then we probably need to be a little bit more cautious and change our approaches. Um, but what what the literature's really told us so far is if it is spread at all via an airborne mechanism, it's actually not that great of a of a route. It is still predominantly droplet. Yeah, I'm just one of those people that that has to like like I take a step back and I'm like, all right, if it's airborne, then. I would think that these protest gatherings would be super spreader events, and that hasn't, yeah. that doesn't seem to have been the case. So again, I'm not a scientist. Do not rely on me. Uh, that's just Carmen um, speculating. Okay, let's talk about uh, using anti-inflammatory drugs to shorten the COVID recovery time. This seems like good news. Yeah. So there's a newer drug that's actually being studied right now. It's called barsitinib, and the point of this drug is that if it can decrease the immune response, then perhaps a person may not have as severe of an infection. So they've been actively studying it uh, in combination with other agents that we've used, so in combination with steroids and, and even by itself. And there's some early data that looks a little promising. I think what's interesting to note about this drug, though, is that it can actually um, increase the risk of clotting in people. Mm. And as, as we've talked about, that's that's a big risk with COVID. So I'm really waiting to see what the data is going to show in the long run. So these are just early early trials that are being uh, put out there right now. Um, it's not actually been approved or even received an emergency use author the authorization from the FDA. So we can't quite use it in patients yet. So this is one of those times where we see a headline and we might get like really excited about it. And then in reality, if you read all the way down, you're going to find out, hey, this is actually not yet proven out. Um, I get the sense, Zach, that sometimes we end up with headlines that are basically the product of, uh, of sort of the press release department of any number of a myriad of drug makers out there. And um, so I just want to... I guess I just want people to sort of hesitate before they um, embrace a therapeutic that is suggested or certainly um, a suggestion of a cure. Let's be very um, let's be very cautious and let's um, let the you know, it, let's let the science work itself out because science is all about asking the next question. It's not about a final answer. Uh, and so for those of us that 
would like for this to be over and would like for, you know, the medical professionals and the pharmaceutical drug makers to have already answered, you know, the ultimate and final question. You know, how are we going to rid ourselves of COVID forever and ever? Well, that's going to be at the return of Jesus. Like, right. I mean, this is going to be with us it, it, in some form, in some in some way. This is like the cold. It comes. It's going to come around. It is a coronavirus and it's going to be with us. I, I just think at some point, Zach, people have to begin to understand that. Yeah, you know, we, we really just have to go where the data leads us. And, and sometimes the data actually makes us backtrack and say, you know, we thought we were right, but it doesn't look like we're right anymore. Um, and and yeah. that's just kind of been the nature of this, this whole virus, this whole pandemic. It's science in real time, which just makes it really challenging to navigate. Science in real time. That should be like your nickname. That would be fun. Okay. So uh, <laughs> uh, Dr. Zach Jenkins and I are going to be back in just a minute. We're going to talk about trials for um, for one vaccine, and maybe we'll just talk about the progress that vaccine uh, engineers are working on um, right now. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is amazing Amazing grace and unfailing love. Uh, those are going to those are going to be the things I'm going to encourage you to be thinking about and living out today. Um, I am in the middle of a conversation with Dr. Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University. We are talking all things COVID headlines, and I'm reading a headline right now, Zach, um, that Oxford University is resuming the UK trial for AstraZeneca's um, vaccine. Tell us, remind us what's happening in sort of the vaccine development and trial part of this COVID conversation? So we really have a few different vaccines that have reached phase three trials, and those are the ones that the president's uh, coronavirus task force team have highlighted um, with Operation Warp, Warp Speed as being big targets for a potential solution to our problem. One of those uh, was is being developed by AstraZeneca, and what happened about a week ago, a little bit over a week ago, during their study, they ended up having a case of transverse myelitis that occurred, which is basically something that affects your, your nervous system. And, and this was actually really concerning for people, so they halted that trial um, because they were wondering, could this have indeed been brought on by one of the vaccine, or by the, one of the uh, people receiving a vaccine? So there's been such a big push to get these vaccines out there. People are kind of nervous when they hear things like this because it makes people say, hey, are we, are we doing things the right way? Well, one thing to kind of consider is that a lot of these vaccines have what are called an independent data safety monitoring and review board in place. And what that is, it's a group of people that are outside of the study that aren't being influenced uh, with, with bias and things who look at that data periodically to say, hey, is this hurting people or is this helping people? And, and they've been known to stop things early if they see there's this huge risk of harm when someone receives any kind of product. They also stop it early if you know one group is being treated and the other isn't, and the treated mm. group has a clear benefit. So like at that point, it's unethical to not provide the same solution to the other group if the one group has that clear benefit. So they, they'll stop it for those two reasons sometimes um, before studies are ultimately concluded. So that's what they do with this AstraZeneca case. And uh, they actually went ahead and they resumed it because they didn't really feel that that one case uh, was enough to make them stop at this point or that they could truly trace it to being because of the vaccine itself. 
So so that's still going on right now. It's the only one that's been reported in that way, but it got a lot of press. Um, I think the other interesting thing that's really hit our, our, our vaccine news cycle lately is that the Health and Human Services Department under the Trump administration just released their vaccine rollout plan. I know, and you should tell us about that because I mean, I, 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 it's pretty stunning, and it seems pretty aggressive. Yeah, I, I think probably the biggest thing to to take note of is I mean, like everybody by April. That seemed <laughs> everybody by April is their goal. Now. That's if we're lucky enough to get the vaccine this year. If everybody would pay their taxes by April, the whole world would be different. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah, it's, it's pretty aggressive, and it's something that I think we we all would hope for if we could make that happen. Um, but it's all contingent on what's what vaccine do we get? Is it the best vaccine that we can have? Can we scale it the right way? Um, what they're doing, though, is they're kind of rolling it out in an interesting way. So they've authorized pharmacists across the country, for example, who've been doing immunizations for a long time. They've authorized them all to basically give uh, COVID vaccines right away. And that's independent of whatever state, state uh, authority they had been given before. Um, so, so that's actually All right. So that's like every place that I drive vaccines. by that says flu shots today. Yep. Every place that I see that they're going to be able to also give COVID uh, nineteen vaccines without having to go through an additional process in their state. That's correct, and they can actually give all vaccines all the way down to uh, children at the age of three or above. Okay, let me tell you, that's gonna change. that's gonna be a great cost saving as well because you're not gonna have to pay to go see somebody to do it. Yeah, access like you don't have to pay for the office visit. It's like huge. That's huge. Mm -hmm. So that that that's a big change. Another big thing is I think they've talked about how they're going to roll this out, and and we sort of alluded to this before. We knew that healthcare workers and first responders were going to get it. So that's about five percent of our population. After that, it's those that really have a high risk of burden from this infection or or death potentially, and older adults who are in those densely populated settings like nursing homes. Um, so that's like phase one and phase two, and those may be done at the same time, depending on how much vaccine's available. After that, they start looking at people who are at a high risk of exposure. So, for example, school teachers, um, people in homeless shelters, prisons, because of their frequency of contact with other people. Um, then it's pretty much everyone else gets it. So young children, adults, et cetera, who may have a risk. And then, of course, everyone who doesn't have a high risk, they'd be that last group. So that's sort of the staged rollout that they're hoping to have done by the end of April, which is really aggressive. It's really aggressive. All right. There's one more story that you and I had um, planned to talk about today. We only have a couple of minutes left, but I want to highlight this. Substance use disorders, and particularly opioid use disorders, substantially increase the road, r- the risk for COVID-19. Um, I don't find that particularly surprising, but talk with us about this this particular issue? So, you know, it, it's it's a really interesting paradigm. Um, since the pandemic started, we've had a lot of stress in this country, a lot of anxiety. Um, the opioid, opioid epidemic was already a problem. Um, you know, I'm in, I live in Ohio and, and practice down in Southwest Ohio. And in Southwest Ohio, uh, we have a city called Hamilton. Hamilton is actually the opiate capital of the United States. It's the biggest heroin capital in the U.S., so we, we see a lot of these cases. And when the pandemic hit, a lot of this was exacerbated. People were kind of locked inside. They became more depressed, more anxious if they were already that way or maybe became that way for the first time. So we've seen the the rates of suicide and the rates of substance abuse 
skyrocket really since this started. Now, part of it's the pandemic. Part of it's, uh, I think, our political unrest in this country. We can kind of layer those two together. Um, but the problem is now, now we're kind of coming out with data to suggest that those who are maybe using significant opiates are putting themselves at a much higher risk of COVID in and of itself. So it kind of becomes this, this uh, cycle of worsening burden from the disease, more substance abuse because of anxiety and depression, worsening abuse from uh, or worsening response to the disease, that kind of thing. So that's a, that's a big concern that uh, I think I have moving forward. Dr. Zach Jenkins, as always, thank you so very much for joining us. We appreciate your staying um, on top of all these things. We appreciate what you're doing out there on the front lines. Um, thank you again for today's conversation. All right. Well, thank you so much. All right. We'll talk to you next week. That's Zach Jenkins. Uh, he is a professor at Cedarville University. He's also on the front lines of all of this as a healthcare provider in Ohio. We'll be right back. All right. You definitely heard over the weekend, or if you didn't, maybe you've been on a news blackout, uh, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, died. And so we now have a vacancy on the Supreme Court. As you can imagine, or as you have already heard, the, um, wow, the frenzy has begun. There are those, obviously, on the Democrat side who would say it is unreasonable for the Republican president and the Republican-controlled Senate to even think about nominating and confirming a Supreme Court justice before the election. On the flip side, you were going to hear the president saying, I absolutely intend to name a nominee this week. He has committed that it is going to be a woman. We are going to talk about all the aspects related to this with Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College up next. Whether you've talked about it in your family or not, you certainly live by them. So what are the behavior policies in your home? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Mom, Dad, take time to list the 10 most important issues in your home. Then build a family policy around each. Here's a sample list from my home. Disrespect, dishonesty, alcohol, or inappropriate internet activity. They might be different in your home, but the point is this. You need to think about, write down, and communicate your non-negotiable issues. Clear boundaries will curtail lots of grief in the future. And clarity in your convictions will help your child develop boundaries of his or her own. Want more parenting help from Mark Gregston? Find helpful resources at parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. Dr. Adam Carrington is joining me now from Hillsdale College. And um, Adam, you are uh, especially under scrutiny today because I understand that Rick Carrington, your dad, is listening today in Ohio. So good morning, Rick. I, I, I hope I can uh, make my father <laughs> proud. We'll see how, how I okay, do. Now let me go ahead and say what my mom would say right now. Honey, you have already made me proud. That That is that like right. There's just no question that you've already made your dad proud. So, uh, Dr. Adam Carrington, let's talk about the big, the big, big, big political news over the weekend, and that is 
I mean, I guess it's strange to say that someone's death is big political news, but the vacancy created on the Supreme Court by the death of uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg is certainly um, going to be the driving narrative of our national conversation for the next several weeks. Absolutely. And it is obviously something people were wondering about, uh, worried about on at least one side of the aisle, and uh, I think seemed to have been kept pretty well under wraps, but uh, some of her health complications. But it, it obviously is a big deal. The Supreme Court has become a very important institution in American political life. She lived a very um, uh, full life, uh, amazing all the things that she accomplished. And I think that uh, since the Supreme Court, as an interpreter of the Constitution, is such a big institution, it's going to play a major, major role, not just in the presidential race, but the Senate races coming up going forward as well. All right. And clearly, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I mean, I'm going to describe her as sort of the leading voice on the left or the liberal wing of the court. Um, maybe I'm wrong about that, but who would now be the furthest to the left or who emerges, in your view, as the leader of the liberal wing of the Supreme Court? One, you're you're right, uh, especially the last decade plus, she has been the leader of the Democratic appointees that have a more living constitution view of interpretation that believes that the meaning of the words are, are adaptable to the times. Uh, of the Constitution and the laws. And I think that actually the most liberal and the leader of that wing is going to change. It's going to be two different people now. I think the most progressive or the most living constitutionalist at the, now is going to be Justice Sonia Sotomayor, um, who was appointed by President Obama. And I think the one that is going to be probably the leader of it and was emerging a bit as the leader is going to be the other uh, President Obama appointee, Justice Kagan who I think has shown a real great adaptability. One, she's a very good writer, which Justice Ginsburg was as well. Two, probably even more than Justice Ginsburg, she's seems to be pretty good at deal-making or working behind the scenes at the court to, to put together even coalitions broader than the more liberal judges. So I think it's going to be interesting seeing that the uh, no longer will the leader of that block be probably the most liberal justice. And it'll be interesting to see how that changes the dynamic of the court going forward. OK, so that's fascinating. Let's um, let's talk a little bit. And some of this I recognize is going to be, you know, speculation. Um, what happens next? Uh, we are hearing that the president uh, intends to name a nominee this week. He has committed to that being a woman. We think we probably know who the two uh, most likely candidates are. Um, but in your view, sort of what happens next and what rightly happens next in this process? I think the most likely at this point is that Republicans uh, try after this week that I should stop and say that the president will nominate someone this coming week. And as you said, we know it's probably going to be either uh, Barbara uh, Lagoa, the uh, Supreme Court uh, justice from Florida, or Amy Coney Barrett, uh, who was a, a, a major player at the last time and one of the finalists. And I think that based on what people are saying so far with the president and Mitch McConnell, the Senate majority leader, most likely they are going to try to push a vote through before the election and have this person seated in time for uh, the November election to take place. 
anything could happen, obviously. And I think that they are perfectly within their right to do so. Uh, the president, as long as he is president, has the power to nominate a Supreme Court replacement. The Senate, as long as there's, those senators are in, have the right to vote. There is some debate about whether the logic by which in 2016 Mitch McConnell did not vote on President Obama's replacement for Justice Scalia, for those who remember, whether he's being consistent this time. Uh, I, I think that's a much closer question. But as far as the Constitution, these are the people we elected for this term. They are perfectly within their rights to replace this judge if they're able to do it before November 3rd. It's going to be absolutely fascinating to watch um, how on both sides of the aisle people argued one thing in 2016, and you will absolutely see every one of them arguing the other thing today. So that that is going to be a part of the, I think, the conversation as Christians we're going to want to have. There's so many topics I want to talk with you today. Let's talk about President Trump's commission on teaching patriotic education. Right. He signed an executive order creating this commission that is already now doing certain things for opera operating. And I think that the, the main question to, to bring up with, with this that I think might be of interest is not, not necessarily the nitty gritty of how much money or uh, some of the specifics of it, but asking, but what, what is, what this really gets at the question of why do we educate? What's mm. the purpose of education? So, you know, early on uh, in my education, I often got told by, by people at, sc at my school you need to do this to get a job. You need to learn these things to have a career, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember getting into college and being told, you're not here to get a job, and it kind of flooring me, and asking, what, what do you mean? And, and being told, yes, getting a job is part of an education, but a true education, and I think those that, you know, Christians raising their kids really, I think, can attach to this, it's actually forming the whole person not just as a worker, but as a, 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 a child of God, as a citizen. And I think that uh, recognizing an education that has civics in it and recognizing an education that at least sensibly shows you what's good about your country and what you can build on that's good about your country is perfectly legitimate. And, and I, I, some of the people that are on this panel are people that I think uh, are willing to take that kind of route and I think uh, some of the premature bashing of it that I've seen from elements of the body politic, I think, are a little overwrought and a little premature, given what I think education needs to be for a good civic polity and for people to live out their, their calling in the world. What? You didn't like the Washington Post headline, Trump joins dictators and demagogues in touting patriotic education? <laughs> <laughs> that, okay. and that, that, yeah, that shows a, a bit of a problem, right? You think yeah, so? Because, that show, there's a little bias yeah. in that headline, yeah. Um, exactly. Okay, um, so let's take a very brief break. When we come back, uh, Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College and I are going to talk about Biden and his use of religious language. We're also going to talk about 2020 polling and whether or not we can trust them. That's up next. You're on Mornings with Carmen. I'm smelling coffee, birds are singing just outside. Here comes your mercy Continuing my conversation with Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College, feeling under particular scrutiny this morning because we know that Rick Carrington, his dad, is listening in Ohio. 
Um, let me just tell you, Adam, my mom, Ruth Ann, is listening most mornings, and so I'm I'm feeling your the 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 angst. I share your angst. I appreciate that. No, he is a very generous person. So I, I definitely not my harshest critic. My wife's not listening as far as I can tell. Uh, <laughs> see, there you go. All right, Rick, you're allowed to count my ums, but you're not allowed to count Adam's ums. That's how this works. Okay. So Biden and his use of religious language. What do we need to know about this? Well, I think the background is very important that we a lot of what dominates the conversation about religion and politics is what's sometimes called the Christian right or the religious right, and the fact that most self-identified evangelicals have voted Republican for the last generation, including overwhelmingly for President Trump this last time and probably this coming time. And so <clears throat> there's been sort of a debate on the left about is there a place for a religious left? Uh, there certainly have been attempts to do so, and what about and, and to what degree should presidents uh, speak about their faith from from more the the left leaning side? And there's even been some attacks on on on, on Biden as not being as, as for example President Trump saying he is going to hurt God and some things like this. And what's been interesting is that uh, uh, Biden seems to be a fairly devout Roman Catholic. He has spoken about his faith regularly on the trail. He has a biography that uh, notes that that this certainly has a lot of tragedy in it, lost several family members to either cancer or a car accident. And uh, that the, that that has he has said has really informed his faith and really asked the question, can this be effective politically? Also, what what? What uh, role is there? To what degree can there be a vibrant left-leaning religiosity out there that that can be vibrant for for, for the fall election? And I think that that is a, the kind of questions that uh, you know a kind of Biden candidacy asked as the Democratic Party seems to be becoming increasingly secular. So this is going to be, I think, uh, a particularly interesting conversation to watch unfold, particularly. In what I might describe as the more mainstream media, um, I'm looking at an NPR lead sentence of um, of a of a conversation about Joe Biden and his faith. And it says Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden's faith is central to how he sees the world. How does his Catholicism affect his politics? He's described as a person who is known to carry a rosary in his pocket, go to mass every Sunday. Um, And it says in here, you know, his faith is central to how he sees the world and it will affect it does affect his politics. And it's going to be interesting, I think, Adam, to watch in the next few weeks if, in fact, Amy Coney uh, Barrett ends up being the president's nominee for the Supreme Court. The primary argument against her is that she's, um, you know, she's actually a real Catholic. She carries a rosary and she goes to mass every Sunday and she actually believes what the Catholic Church teaches about life. It's going to be really difficult for Democrats to not uh, to, you know, to swing an axe in her direction and somehow avoid hitting Joe Biden. Absolutely. And this comes up something we, we talked about around the time of the conventions. And I think you made a very good point that at times this shows that for some, their true religion isn't uh, an organized, typical faith of some form of Christianity or Islam or Judaism or, or or whatever, it really is politics and partisanship, and that mm-hmm. you're willing to allow someone to be 
faithful to their religion if that faithfulness aligns with your partisanship. And I think that's absolutely it. And I wonder if the the, uh, the Biden campaign is at least somewhat aware of that. They're not going to be able to control their other surrogates. But I was reading something where they are looking at the angle for attacking any of the nominees as being health care, saying that the Affordable Care Act is going to be up before the Supreme Court this coming term. And whoever's going to be put in place may take away your health care, so to speak. Uh, and I'm wondering if that's an attempt to deflect an attempt by what they know elements of the political left are going to be to attack the faithfulness of, of someone like uh, Amy Coney Barrett's religiosity. I, I don't know that that's going to work. I think the other elements are going to be too too loud. And I think you're right. This is a kind of hypocrisy that, that when and if it comes out is going to need to be pointed out and, and, and combated. Yeah, I think there's no question that uh, the ACA is um, is their big concern, and you're going to see that lifted up even today um, by outlets like Axios, which tends to be you know a pretty fair arbiter of um, of news. But that is what they are lifting up today, as you know, the Supreme Court is slated to hear oral arguments on the Affordable Care Act uh, challenge the week after the election, and so obviously. If the seat at the vacancy created by the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg is filled by then, um, it, it radically changes the conversation that takes place, uh, you know, in the court. However, I have to assume that a person who is just seated as, you know, for the very first week of their term of service um, is hard for me to imagine they're going to make much of a uh, of a splash right away. But I could be wrong. I could be wrong. All right. Talk with us about 2020 polling. I got to admit, I'm one of those people that at this point just thinks polling is utterly useless. So you could convince me otherwise. <laughs> well, it it depends. Uh, I'm how, not sure how, I would tell people the, the truth if they called me right now, because I'm <laughs> not sure that I have an answer that that a poll a pollster would be sensitive to. Right. And, and one thing to clear up about the 2016 polls uh, is that the national polls were actually pretty accurate. I think the final Washington Post poll had Clinton 49, Trump 46. The final vote was Clinton 48, Trump 46. So with with that, the, the, the problem was some of the uh, state polls, especially polls like uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, that were the tipping point states that didn't get polled much. People just assumed that the Democrats were going to win them and were wrong. Uh, so I, I think polls can at least give you an idea of some of the trends. I think that they, there are some ways to make sure that it at least gives you a general state of the race. But I also would say that one needs to be careful assuming that those sort of snapshots can be perfectly right. So I, 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 do, I think that the polls have enough of a track record that they're worth keeping an eye on, but they're not something to say – at the end of the day, this is going to definitively tell us what where the race is and what the race is doing. I just imagine yep. that pollsters today are fast and furiously rejiggering all kinds of polls now related mm -hmm. to the process of filling the vacancy on the Supreme Court. I, I imagine we're all going to get lots of phone calls now. I mean, yep. maybe not and, those and of us who live in states where there's not big questions, but those of you who are living in states where you you already know because you hear advertising all the time on every outlet. Um, but, I, you know, some of us are living in states where there's there's very few ads and almost no yard signs because pretty much everybody knows the direction that it's going to go um, in a particular state. 
Yeah, and and one thing that that uh, it could be there's this talk of, for example, shy Trump voters that the president is underperforming his polls because of voters that are unwilling to state their opinion, and and I don't actually believe if that is true, I don't believe they're actually shy. Uh, I have not met many uh, shy President Trump voters in, uh, 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 in places where you know he's doing well. I've met some shy Biden voters actually, but I think that. It's not easy in the era of cell phones to get a hold of people sometimes and to get a hold of a representative sample of the American people. And I think um, uh, we'll see if pollsters are able to reconfigure those questions. But uh, in the end, you know, the bit the, the poll that most matters is going to be on, on on November 3rd. And I think we're we have so much to go so far. We have three debates. You have the Supreme Court battle. Um, um, you know, I, I wouldn't say ignore the polls. I wouldn't, but definitely don't hang your hat on everything and anything they say. All right. Uh, this is a yes or no question. Will we know the night of uh, November the 3rd who our next president is? No. Okay. I, uh, I agree with that poll. There's two votes for that. All right. Uh, maybe I will keep track and we'll see how we do um, with Dr. Adam Carrington and others with whom I get to have that conversation in the next couple of weeks. Adam, thank you so much, Rick. I hope you were satisfied uh, with my interview of your son. Um, you guys have a great day. Thank you. We'll be right back. All right, I'm going to circle back around to the question about how do you respond to the grace of God offered in Jesus Christ? How do you respond to the one who came from heaven to earth and went from the earth to the cross and the cross to the grave and the grave to the sky, the one who is coming again to judge the living and the dead? How do you respond to Jesus? How do you respond to him? Some responded by calling out his name and running to him. They carried other people to him. They sought him out. They followed him. Many gave their lives in advocacy that others would come to know him. And then there are those who responded to Jesus with skepticism, apathy, outright rejection, seeking to sustain some system of belief or power that they had prior to Jesus and some just wanting to be autonomous, some just wanting to be their own people apart from God. How do you respond to Jesus? That's the ultimate question, not only of the day, but of the lifetime. We got a whole nother hour of Mornings with Carmen up next to stay with us. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.